Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Welcome to the Mother of All Talk Shows, the College of Knowledge, the Open University of the Airwaves, where there are no tuition fees and where you are positively encouraged to talk back to the teacher, albeit an uneducated one such as myself. Your calls, your tweets, your emails are welcome throughout the show and we'll get as many of you on air as we possibly can. You can listen to us in crystal clarity on FM in the Washington, D.C. area. 105.5 other magic numbers there. You can listen on AM from coast to coast, from burning city to burning city, right throughout the United States. You can listen across the entire world on SputnikNews.com. Thanks to the wonders of Algorithms Internet. And... You may be one of those half a million or more who every single week now are watching as well as listening to the show. And if you are doing so on Facebook, please share it with all of your friends on Facebook right now because that algorithm is always busy. You can watch on my Facebook page, on RT's multiple Facebook pages. Ditto on my YouTube channel. Do subscribe. If you're watching on there, uh, we still haven't got our medal from uh, YouTube for getting over 100,000 subscribers. I don't know if they've just forgotten about us or whether they're hoping we'll go away. Hope they don't hope that too much because they can always make us go away, which is why I'm encouraging everyone to follow me on my Telegram channel. You can watch on Telegram. You can watch on Instagram. Uh, at least the opening remarks you can watch, as an amazing number of you do, live on your telephone on Twitter. But whatever, uh, t.me, George slash George Galloway is the Telegram channel, t.me forward slash George Galloway. Do uh, follow me on that because one day that might be the only place that you can follow me. Maybe I'm being pessimistic, but the rigors of the social media oligarchs were visited on the United States public just this week. And we'll be talking to Rachel Blevins, the inimitable Rachel Blevins, about that. The president of the United States has a whole unit in the White House getting people banned off Facebook, getting their videos taken down, getting their posts taken down, their pages closed all the while demanding freedom of the internet in Cuba. Now, Cuba is very, very important to me. I wrote a book uh, about Fidel Castro, the Fidel Castro Handbook, signed copies of which are still available 
at my shop, though they are running out now and we won't be republishing them. So if you want one, you best act quickly. I happen to believe that Fidel Castro is the greatest man I ever met by a country mile in all of my life. I happen to love Cuba and its revolution and its achievements from the bottom of my heart. It is an agony to me to see the gold-toothed emigres, gusanos, in Miami, in Florida, thinking that they are dancing on the grave of the Cuban Revolution. I don't myself believe it for a minute. And neither would you if you saw the crowds in support of the Cuban Revolution out on the streets of Havana today. I think this is a misfiring color revolution that the United States has sparked, but it presumably presages more efforts. So the period of the Obama-Biden administration of normalization of relations with Cuba, with President Obama, you may recall, visiting Cuba, meeting Fidel Castro, appear to be history. And yet Joe Biden was the vice president of the man that normalized relations with Cuba. You've got to expect that Cuba will come under unrelenting attack and destabilization. But hey, that's been happening for 60 years. It's just that there weren't any social media pictures of it. Cuba's achievements are very clear. It has a longer life expectancy than the United States of America. It has fewer uh, infant mortalities uh, than the United States of America. It has a better health service than the United States of America. It has higher rates of literacy than the United States of America. No children in Cuba, none, zero, go to work instead of school, but 120 million children go to work instead of school every day in the rest of the developing world, but not one of them in Cuba. Perhaps these are the reasons why the United States hates Cuba so much. But we've got to ask the question, what will be the next move? I'm sure the Cubans are asking that right now. And you can't talk about Cuba without talking about Haiti, because Haiti is what Cuba would have been if not for the glorious victory of Castro and the 26th July movement uh, back in 1959. Uh, the fate of Haiti, a sink of misery, of drug addiction, of rampant criminality, of gang warfare, of racism, of rapine, of regular coups against the rigged electoral choices thrown up by the Haitian elections. But as far as I know, uh, the president uh, that was murdered last week by persons unknown is the first Haitian leader literally to be killed by gunmen whilst in office. Most of the gunmen were Colombian former service personnel, Colombia is a key ally of the United States of America. Two of the murderers were American citizens, albeit of Haitian extraction.
we'll be talking to an editor of Haiti Liberté, a very considerable expert, Kim Ives, about what's really going down in Haiti. And above all, I suppose, what's going to happen next. We'll be talking, as I say, uh, about American politics, about the extraordinary démarche of President Biden. I don't know if he knew he was there or knew what he was saying, but he accused uh, the uh, Facebook in particular of killing people by allowing a modicum of freedom of speech on their platforms. We'll be talking, as I say, to Rachel Blevins about that. We'll be talking about the anniversary of the landing on the moon if it happened. But we'll also be talking about the film I launched at the Everyman Cinema in Muswell Hill and a big thank you to them for a most beautiful venue and a flawlessly run event. Uh, the film is even better than I imagined it to be. I saw it last night in Toto for the first time because of course I've seen every frame in it many, many times, but I hadn't seen it sewn together so beautifully by our director, Sean Murray, uh, the rising star of Irish cinema. It's an important film, not just because this is the 18th anniversary uh, of Dr. David Kelly's death, uh, almost to the hour, almost to the day, uh, not just because David Kelly is a human being that uh, deserved better than what happened to him. Not just because he left behind a grieving family who must, I'm sure, uh, still be unclear as to exactly how he met his end. It's important for all of those reasons. But it's even more important because it is an example of the extent to which that the Britain we thought we knew had begun to disappear under the Blair rule. The Britain that we thought we knew, which has been changing even more rapidly since 2003. The Britain where we thought we had relatively, I stress relatively, uncorrupted institutions, uncorrupted courts, relatively uncorrupted police, a relatively uncorrupted system of inquests and a proper handling of unexplained deaths. An era in which it obviously now looking back on it became clear that we were ruled by brazen liars. There had always been in politics uh, a space for terminological inexactitudes. There had always been a history of being economical with the actuality. Uh, one government minister, the Minister for War, Profumo, had had to resign for lying to the House of Commons uh, back in 1963 about the fact that he was having an affair with a call girl, Christine Keeler. Fast forward. 40 years, and it's now clear we had a prime minister, indeed a whole government, uh, that was at the dispatch box lying through its teeth every day 
about the need to invade and occupy Iraq and the need to exclude, to crush, maybe even to kill anyone who stood in the way of that corruption of democracy in our country was dispensable. The Blair gang, the gang that couldn't shoot straight, killed a lot of people, uh, but they also killed the faith in our institutions, in our system, in our democracy that had been held generation after generation uh, by the vast majority of British people. My late father, God rest his soul, being one of them who went to his grave uh, believing that Britain was the greatest country in the world. And while all those things that I've just talked about could be found in profusion in every other country in the world, Britain was somehow special. That when our Prime Minister spoke, especially if he was citing the findings of our intelligence services next door and across the river from me now, and listening to every word, of course, that I'm saying, that when a Prime Minister spoke, citing our intelligence services, we had no choice but to believe them, for they scarcely would lie about something as important as that, would they? Well, when you see the film, which you can order right now, but don't watch it till after the show, you can rent it for uh, £4 and you can buy it for 6 or you can buy a DVD which will be signed and posted to you for £10. The details will be up later. And I'll be talking to the man whose courage, some people say I was brave to make the film, maybe a wee bit, but the Right Honourable Norman Baker was much braver when he wrote the book on which the film is based, The Strange Death of Dr. David Kelly, because he wrote it not long after the demise of the aforementioned Dr. David Kelly. We'll be talking to the Right Honourable Norman Baker on the show. Now, talking of such matters, uh, will you be wearing a face covering next week? A, yes. B, no. C, when asked to. You can vote in that poll on my Twitter handle. Now, I've got a long list of places that you can watch as well as listen. Of course, listeners are just as valuable to us as viewers. We're not vain or anything. We like to think that as many people are listening as are watching. But if you are watching, here's where you can do it. Moats TV Twitter, Moats TV Facebook, Twitch on RT International's YouTube and RT International's Facebook, on RT UK's YouTube and RT UK's Facebook, on RT UK's Twitter, and on George Galloway Facebook, George Galloway YouTube, George Galloway Twitter, and on FM in the Washington DC area of the United States, 105.5 FM there and right across the United States on AM, out of Maryland. And the monologue is streamed as usual 
on Instagram. And thousands, of course, are listening on our good friends, SputnikNews.com. Download their app. Why don't you join the growing number of people studying at the Open University of the Airwaves? Plenty of votes coming in. Don't forget, you can vote right up until the hour. Now, Rachel Blevins, our uh, regular star from the United States, joins us again now to talk about all things Americana, but starting, Rachel, if I may, with the extraordinary, I don't know if it was a blunder or it was scripted, but the extraordinary statement made by President Biden about the social media companies, effectively, well, not effectively, actually accusing them of killing people and demanding a total censorship of the airwaves. And the irony of that coming on the same day, he was condemning Cuba for a lack of internet freedom. Um, go, tell us. How did this happen? What does this mean? You know, it's always ironic. And what's even more ironic, perhaps, is this new fight that's coming out between Facebook and the White House. They're going back and forth on who they are accusing of being able to combat what they refer to as misinformation. And what's interesting is that right before we heard that statement from Biden, we also heard from Press Secretary Jen Psaki openly saying that the White House is telling Facebook who to censor on their platform. Now, think about that in context of just any other thing that they could possibly talk about, what the White House refers to as misinformation. One, that could mean literally anything. Two, we're hearing from a White House that is admitting that they are the ones working with Facebook, that the Surgeon General is telling Facebook who to block, what posts to take down, which posts to promote on different people's timelines. I mean, if we were to put that in the context of anything else, whether it was the White House trying to, say, sell the American people a war against another country, and they were to come in and tell Facebook, this is who can and cannot speak on your platform. I mean, the precedent that this sets is incredibly terrifying all the way around, and yet they're up there talking about it at the White House. This is not some whistleblower report that came out that we're now referencing. This is being openly talked about as if it's completely normal. Yes, and, and I saw uh, President Biden uh, say it in not as many words and not as eloquently, but that's what he said. Uh, and this in the context of the standard US and British trope that other countries don't have freedom of speech, that their governments tell the media what they can and cannot say. But we've, this has got form, doesn't it? Because I was looking again the other day at the uh, Hunter Biden story and the laptop, uh, which we now know for certain was his laptop. He handed it in to the repair shop. It's his mm -hmm. signature on the receipt. And yet that story about what was on that laptop and all the dirty dealings of all kinds uh, that it revealed was ruthlessly suppressed by Twitter, by Facebook, by the entire social media world in order to ensure that Joe Biden became the president. 
the very man who's now calling them killers. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you bring up the argument of free speech, because I think a lot of times whenever we talk about social media censorship, which, for example, I had my Facebook page taken down my Facebook a few years ago, lost 70,000 followers, and they gave me no excuse for it whatsoever. They just said, oh, well, you violated our policies. Well, when I told a lot of people about that, when I talked about it, a response that I got often was, well, Facebook is a private company. They don't owe you the freedom of speech. They can take your page down if they want to. Well, now we're hearing that you have the government, the White House, telling Facebook what can and cannot be said. So that kind of takes away from that argument, does it? That adds another element there of wondering exactly what is motivating those decisions. And I think a lot of times whenever it comes to something and it's a consensus where all of the mainstream media says, well, it must be true because the White House says that it's true. And now that's applying to social media. Well, that sets an even greater terrifying precedent because it sets this age where before it used to be that you would hear something talked about on CNN or Fox News, and then you would go to social media to sound off on it. Well, now, if you're not allowed to talk on social media because they've automatically labeled it as misinformation, I mean, that just go, there, there's no way in which that can keep us safer. And there's no way in which that can actually help the free flow of information because you're deciding what can and cannot be censored based solely not on what is true and is not true, but based on what the White House says is okay to be put out there this week or next week or whenever it comes to their timeline. Is, is Zuckerberg going to roll over and cry uncle at this or is he going to fight it? Oh, no, he's going to go right along with it, because right now what Congress has done for the last few years is they've sat around and they've said big tech has too much power. And they pointed out all of the ways that Facebook and Twitter and Google are just impossible to take down. Well, those tech giants know that Congress can make their lives a living hell when it comes to fines, when it comes to trying to break up their companies. So what they're doing is they're trying to stay on good terms with Congress. And that's why you see people like Mark Zuckerberg going along with this, because he doesn't want to be hit with the claims that he was hit with back in 2016. Whenever you had the, all of the claims of Russiagate, well, it was blamed on Facebook saying, oh, well, Facebook allowed these so-called conspiracy theories to go. They allowed all of this to happen. So now it's Facebook's fault that Donald Trump is in the White House. So that's put Facebook in this place where they're saying, okay, okay, we'll play along with whatever it is that the White House wants. We'll play along with going along with these claims that we are combating misinformation on their behalf, just as long as they don't turn around and try to go after us and kind of leave us alone and let us live a little bit and continue to become even more powerful. Now, the political and media class got terribly excited last weekend at what they thought, hoped, planned maybe, uh, would be uh, a Ukrainian-style color revolution uh, breaking out in Cuba. They're not so uh, buoyant or ebullient this weekend because the very small protests against the Cuban government uh, contrast with the vast demonstrations of support for the Cuban state that have happened since. But there's a lot of uh, uh, demonstrating going on in Florida, in California, and elsewhere. Um, Cuba says the U.S. planned and scripted this whole thing. Uh, how does that look to you from there? 
Well, I would say it wouldn't be the first time they planned and scripted something like that, certainly not with Cuba. And I think that this is a case where with President Biden himself, I mean, when he was on the campaign trail, he talked about how horrible it was that President Trump took steps to undo the terms of trying to possibly normalize relations with Cuba that Obama put in place. Biden wasn't a fan of that when he was on the campaign trail. Then all of a sudden he gets into office and now he's saying, oh, no, sorry, we can't take steps back. We can't you know, remove any of this blockade on Cuba. And it's notable that you're seeing a lot of people speaking up now and seeing, of course, they're not getting media coverage whenever they're out speaking out about just how cruel and criminal the United States treatment of Cuba has been. And on top of that, I mean, we look back to 2017 and we are reminded of those JFK assassination files that were released, which literally showed that the CIA was openly plotting multiple attacks to try to spark a war with Cuba because they knew that the American people didn't want it. They knew that it was not favorable. And yet some of the attacks that they were discussing were either attacking an American ship off of Guantanamo Bay and blaming it on Cuba to try to spark a war, or they were also talking about possibly attacking a ship of Cuban refugees and then blaming it on rebels. I mean, these were discussions that were being had and approved at the time. We're only just learning about this, you know, back a few years ago, whenever those files were finally released after several decades. And it's important to remember that this is our history. This is the United States government's history, what they were okay with talking about. And that's something that needs to come back to center stage now, especially when you have a Biden administration that is making some of the statements that they are making when it comes to Cuba today. Has Trump been in or rather out? Any news from him, Rachel? You know, not much. He's seen, we've seen a few more speeches from him. There's a lot of talk that he's gonna run in 2024. And he's kind of holding back on making that official announcement saying that he knows what he's going to do, but he hasn't quite put it out there yet. We know that, you know, he's filed lawsuits. He's joined in class action lawsuits, rather, against some of the big tech companies. And one of the most interesting things that has come out of those lawsuits is the fact that he refers to Facebook and Twitter as state actors. And I think that's a really notable thing, especially at a time when we're talking about the White House openly saying that it's colluding with Facebook when it comes to the content that is on their platform. Well, a term like state actors actually goes a long way when it comes to what Facebook's doing right now. And finally, we, 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 I saw a reference to some kind of victory for Trump in the uh, election counting uh, the, the investigation into electoral fraud in Arizona, uh, it seemed to suggest that Trump did, after all, win Arizona, although he was cheated out of it on the night. Can you enlighten us on that? You know, I've seen back and forth on that as to the results, and it's kind of one of those things where each source has something different to say. So I don't know that I can comment on that exactly. But I do think it lends to exactly what a lot of what we've heard from Trump, which is continuing to look back to the 2020 election and continuing to use that as his reference at a time when a lot of Americans are saying, hey, it's 2021, we're moving on. How long is this going to keep coming back up and keep coming back around? And I think it's going to take a number of states having results like that and a number of states saying, hey, these irregularities were similar to what Trump said in order for there to really be momentum there. 
Um, but I'm sure we will hear more and more from him as the months go along. Indeed, and hopefully from you, Rachel Blevins. Thank you for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Now, if you're in the United Kingdom, you can call us completely free on 08081 965522. That's 08081965522. Or if you're in the United States where it's equally free, it's plus one eight four four nine four four double three double four. That's plus one nine uh, sorry, plus one eight four four nine four four double three double four. And you can email us at onair at moats.tv. Let's get some phone calls in. Jim in Fort Worth. Go ahead, Jim. No, no, Fort Collins, George. Fort Colorado. Collins. Okay, thank you for that correction. Go ahead, Jim. No problem. Okay, um, on Cuba, the uh, mayor of uh, Miami was interviewed on Fox News this week, and um, he gave the usual spiel. Uh, but the Fox uh, News presenter uh, asked him, so wait a minute, yeah, Cuba has these problems, but... You know, what about the sanctions that the U.S. is putting on them? Now, you know, they usually don't do that in the United States. No, especially uh, not on Challenge Fox. them like that, and not on Fox either. No. And so he babbled away about, oh, the people don't want the, <laughs> the sanctions. Was he the lifted. one who, who called on the United States to bomb Cuba? Yeah, it's going on like that. But this is the thing that got me. Um, yeah, and so the people on uh, Jacobin. Um, this guy has buildings in his city that are falling down and, or and being abandoned. Killing, killing people in large by, numbers, yeah. They were built by the free enterprise system, you know. <laughs> he's talking about Cuba being a failed state. So, so unbelievable. They're in good form here, George. They're Jim, in real good form. You're a gentleman. Always a pleasure to hear from you. Let's go to Germany and talk with Julian. Go ahead, Julian. Hello, George. This is Julian from Germany. Welcome. I, I wanted to talk about, like, our elections in Germany. They're c coming up, right, in September. Okay. And uh, it's about climate change. Uh, climate change, uh, excuse my bad English, but um, I, I have the feeling like um, they are using, like, globalist um, propaganda, like, to win it some elections like to like uh, keep the cdu our christian democratic party in in power and it's um we, we are right now experiencing experiencing major floodings in in the western part of germany and um our government and the media they they already put it on on climate change but um if you look closer it's it's obvious that they have done nothing like to prevent damage from like heavy rainfall which was predicted like for years now and uh they are they are instead they are talking about hydrogen fuels and electric cars and we don't even have like the fuel to run them with green energy until like 2030 or 2040 or later so like all of this has been started like 20 years ago or 30 years ago like Al Gore, we all remember like the elections in the United States with Al Gore. It was all about CO2 already. Like when Merkel, our chancellor, when, when she started, it's like 16 years now, 
that she has been our chancellor. Uh, she was she started as our minister of environment, and she was already back then. She was like pushing forward like green energy and CO2 reduction, and uh, it's it's like it feels like a joke because it's it's all coming up again. It's the the, the very old propaganda. It's all coming up again, and it, it has like it has like a true side in it. And I think like all countries on earth, they would like support a goal of like have a better sustainable life on earth. But it's not about this, in my opinion. So like 20 years ago already, they, they, they started to, to like fight against nuclear power, the green party, they were against nuclear power. They, they wanted to stop coal. And, and now we had like, uh, when it happened in Fukushima in Japan, there was a big, big, big earthquake. And in Germany, we, we don't have earthquakes. We don't have volcanoes. We have like, we can have like secure nuclear power. And, and now it's back. Uh, it should be back on the table at least. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we don't have time to debate nuclear power, but I'm with you on that one. Um, we don't have time actually, and I don't have the expertise to debate the Germ German elections. We're relying on you. Uh, to All give right. us a prediction here, Julian. Uh, Mrs. Merkel is going, finally. Uh, we don't yet know, I think, who her successor in the CDU will be. But whoever it is, it would seem likely they will prevail because the other parties have fallen away. The SPD, the Labour equivalent, uh, the uh, far-right uh, AFV, uh, uh, is it? Uh, the AFD, Alliance for Deutschland, uh, they, they've all fallen away. So it looks like whoever Merkel's party picks will be the new chancellor. Is that how you, how you see it? I, I think you're right, George. I think like um, the, our, our, our chancellor party, like the CDU, they are like establishing... Um, Let's say, like the environment to be to be voted again in power, and it's happening again. And this this time they will like not uh, be in a coalition with like the social democrats, with are failing not not just in the UK, they are failing in Germany too. So like uh, they will be in in a coalition with the Green Party, and this is uh, basically their goal. So like maybe you know our southern uh, uh, president, like uh, Söder, Markus Söder. And, and, and this guy, he is like just copying. He's just copying the narrative of the Green parties. And it's, it's just because the globalist agenda is telling him to do so, to, to just to win uh, elections. And, Fascinating, uh, it, Julian. Uh, yeah. you, we need to uh, schedule a proper discussion on the German elections. I hope you'll contribute to it. Thank you very much indeed uh, for that uh, call. Hey, you. Do you want to know more of what's happening in the world right now? Of course you do. But getting to the heart of the story, well, that's going to take some hard work. That's why here at the Mother of All Talk Shows, we've created that program just for you. Hosted by one of the world's most sagacious minds. Get a perspective, an education on stories from all around the world, dissected and discussed with you. Join our debate, vote in our polls on Twitter, Tweet a question to George or call in now to give us your perspective on the stories the rest of the world simply isn't talking about. Join the College of Knowledge where there are no tuition fees. 
hosted by one of the world's greatest orators, the mother of all talk shows, with George Galloway. Let's make sense of the world together. We can't speak about Cuba without speaking about Haiti because, hey, they're next door neighbors. And the best man I have yet met to speak about Haiti is an editor of Haiti Liberty, which, as the name suggests, does its best to foster freedom in Haiti, which has been a very, very difficult wicket for a very, very long time. His name is Kim Ives. I hear that the line is a little unsteady, but I'm very much hoping to see him now. Kim, uh, welcome to the mother of all talk shows. I do hope we can hear each other. Uh, the vision's not as important. Uh, being of Dunsertan age, I sometimes wish it was only my voice that was on the screen. But that's not, of course, something that affects you. What does affect you is the fact that Haiti just got its president murdered uh, by persons as yet unknown, although I'm willing to bet you've got some pretty hot theories. Let's start with the killing of the president. Tell us what you know, if you would. Well, what we're pretty sure we know, George, is that uh, Colombian mercenaries machine gunned him at close range after shooting his wife, Martine. This is what she told a close friend who told us that story. Uh, she was struck by bullets in the arm and two in the leg. Uh, and uh, she feigned to be dead. And then the uh, mercenary shot uh, Moise at close range, uh, killing him, uh, mutilating his body, removing his left eye, breaking bones. And the next day, after we published our report on Wednesday, on uh, Saturday, one of the mercenaries being interrogated broke down and in tears said that, yes, there was a team of seven within the 26 that have been uh, captured, uh, which uh, did this plot. So it appears there was a plot within a plot where there were seven men uh, tasked with machine gunning the president to death. They did so. The other 19 may have well been dupes. Uh, they thought they were bodyguards for somebody important, which is why some of the uh, discordant reports come out with them saying the family there to guard somebody. But uh, one of them broke down and said, yes, we indeed, we indeed did shoot the president to death. And have we any idea of the provenance of this plot? Uh, no, we don't. Uh, my uh, working hypothesis, our working hypothesis at Liberty Liberté, is that it was the sector of the bourgeoisie, which is very rich, which uh, paid for it and uh, commissioned it. And this is in particular uh, two families, the Boulos family, or I should say Reginald Boulos, who is a sort of businessman now turned uh, presidential candidate, and another family called Vorb. Uh, the entire Vorb family is a little like the Chamorro family in um, Nicaragua, they're all over the map, but Dmitry Vorb ended up becoming a fierce opponent of Jovenel uh, after Jovenel uh, that he wasn't going to pay Vorb's sweetheart deal uh, on electricity. He has a, uh, an energy 
production company, which was uh, supporting the grid after the Petrocaribe deal fell through in 2018. Jovenel came to him and said, listen, dude, I can't pay you what you want. And the guy went over to trying to unseat Jovenel. So uh, we're pretty sure that the provenance is from this sector. Uh, they seem to have the motive. They have the means. And uh, one thing for sure, too, we have to keep in mind is that for us, it's impossible that the U.S. Embassy, which has uh, uh, antennas all over its roof, it's the fourth largest embassy in the world for the U.S., uh, and they follow all the cell phone traffic, all the Internet traffic. We think it's impossible that they could not have had a notion about this. They formed a Preval in 2000 about a plot against him. They foiled it at that time. Why didn't they inform Jovenel about this one? We don't know, but this suggests they might have, at the very least, had a wink and a nod with respect to the operation. Such is the dysfunctionality, uh, quite often, but certainly now, in Haiti. What are the prospects of the killers of the president being brought to justice? Very slim, very slim. They have a saying in Haiti, the inquiry is ongoing. And this is often how most inquiries end, ongoing. Uh, these people, if it is indeed the sector of the bourgeoisie, they're very power, powerful. Somebody like uh, Reginald Boulos can't even really be considered Haitian. He's really part of the transnational bourgeoisie. Uh, he has holdings everywhere in the States, in uh, neighboring Dominican Republic, in Haiti, of course. And uh, he was, in fact, born an American citizen. He, he uh, reclaimed some of his Haitian nationality back when he was 18. So this is uh, a very powerful man. And uh, the odds that in Haiti's weakened, uh, debilitated state and judicial system they would be able to find him uh, guilty, much less arrest him. And it should be said that Jovenel Moïse had an out against, against uh, Reginald Boulos before he was killed. So to what extent that arrest warrant and was, we are told, in an imminent seizing of Reginald Boulos' facilities in Haiti may very well have been the trigger for the assassination. Now, the last time we spoke, you described uh, a quite fascinating phenomenon, uh, which is a massive, lumpen, proletarian uh, mass in the capital, Port-au-Prince, usually referred to as gangs, although gangs doesn't quite do it, and gang leaders, although gang leaders doesn't quite do it. As you described it to me before, it struck me that these were political forces on the ground in Haiti that are potentially uh, powerful players. Is that how you see it? Absolutely. Uh, what we see coming out of the shanty towns of Port-au-Prince is, I could say, a self-aware movement in the lumpen proletariat where they have suddenly realized their power because they have been armed by the bourgeoisie to carry out its political struggles to fight the battles on the field to be the cannon fodder 
of the bourgeoisie's battles and even of the empire's battles, they suddenly have become aware that they are being used, that they are shedding the blood of their brothers, uh, usually uh, facing them. And so that is the message indeed of this leader who has emerged, a charismatic leader, I can even say, who is a great admirer, is a great admirer of Jean-Bertrand Aristide, uh, a certain Jimmy Cherizier known as Barbecue, who has said, we have to stop fighting among each other and we have to turn the guns which the bourgeoisie have given us to fight among each other, we have to turn it on them and carry out a revolution to get rid of this stinking, rotten system. And he has galvanized uh, much of the Port-au-Prince underclass into a political force. And I think this was the primary force, George, that made Boulos panic because he said in the week before the assassination of Jovenel Moïse, we are going to seize your grocery stores, your gas stations, your uh, ports, your uh, banks, and we are going to take what is ours. And this is where uh, the bourgeoisie really panicked. They saw an existential threat coming from this bourgeois, from this uh, lumpen proletariat, and they need to stamp it out. They may have hoped that they could get a strong leader, one that was faithful to them, as they thought Jovenel Moise was going to be. But Jovenel Moise turned out to be an imperfect puppet. He rebelled on them. They wanted to get one in. But more than that, I think they hoped to provoke a foreign military intervention, a U.S. military intervention. And they are, in fact, simply extensions of the USA. They represent the interests of U.S. corporations in Haiti, mostly uh, companies who are using Haitian cheap labor, five bucks a day, to make their electronics and clothing. And so here you have essentially the allies of the empire calling on the empire to intervene through carrying out this heinous act of machine gunning a president as embattled and as questionably legitimate as he was. So uh, this is the situation that we see, and we're pretty sure the facts are going to bear us out. In Haiti now, we're investigating this in many areas. I can't give all the details, but uh, we uh, are hot on the trail, we think, of... Uh, well, uh, we'll, 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 definitely, we'll definitely have to have you back. Last question, though. If the U.S. were to physically intervene, the barbecue and his men might make it hot for them. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. They could, they could. You have to 
paper a century ago, George, there was a movement called the Cacos. They were they were bandits. They were considered the gangs of the day back then. And they were galvanized into a fighting force, into one of history's great guerrilla forces by a fellow called Charlemagne Perrault. And they fought the Marines for three or four years before the Marines, uh, one Marine wearing blackface, infiltrated the camp and shot Charlemagne Perrault through the it didn't end the movement. His One of his lieutenants, Benoit Batraville, continued the struggle for a few more years. But eventually, the Marines deployed the forces to uh, suppress and defeat the Kiko movement. And, um, but could uh, this Jimmy Cherizier become another Charlemagne? History will tell, but uh, I think there are many indications that he has that potential. Kim Ives, stay safe. And we need to talk again. Thank you very much for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Kim Ives in uh, Haiti. How is, the, uh, how is this going? Will you be wearing a face covering next week? Yes, 32. No, 52. See, when asked to, 16%. You know, and it's a very, thank you for, you know, I, I'm a big fan of your show, Gigi. Great, great debate. Great. And I'm Scottish. I'm very passionate about what's happening there. You know, I had a great mom. She was Scottish, Mary McLeod. She taught me well. She taught me well at everything, including golf. I love Scotland and I love the Scottish food. It's great food. I said to Melania, you know, haggis. Look at that. What's more than more Scottish than that? Me. I am that haggis. She said, what, thin-skinned and full of crap? We're joined by the irrepressible, rising, ever-rising television and radio star, Mr. Patrick Christie. Patrick, Hello, welcome George. back uh, to the show. Speaking of TV, mm. what on earth has happened yeah. at, at GB News? Well, it's been an interesting week, hasn't it? Gito Hari, who was uh, guest presenting a show there, decided that at one point he was going to take the knee and outline his views on... As you do when you're presenting when, when a TV show. a radio show. Next to a black presenter who disagrees with it, of course, but, you know, a little bit of virtue signalling never did anyone any harm, apart from him, because he has harmed him. It's cost him his job. Now, in response, a lot of the GB News viewers decided that they didn't want to view it anymore, and they recorded zero views for uh, several of their shows in the wake of this. They then released a statement saying, well, we're, we're essentially quite sorry about it. It goes against our company policy, but we stand uh, against racism, etc. So it's quite a confusing statement, really. Yeah, it was hard to see which part of their policy yeah. it went against. Yeah. <laughs> and also, rather short the fox of their whole, uh, if you'll forgive the yeah. pun, fox, uh, uh, their whole <laughs> shtick, which was... Uh, that they believed in uh, freedom of speech and against the cancel culture. And this is and exactly Gito yeah. Harris being cancelled. Being cancelled. Now, this is it's amazing, isn't it, really? And that's really the main issue, I think, for GP News, because, you know, it is about cancel culture. It is about the fact that you're supposed to be a bastion of free speech and both sides. And this is what we've been crying out for in the media, isn't it? And then, yeah, if someone does something like that, which is not really against any Ofcom guidelines, and I would be surprised if it was indeed against GP News' actual company policy, um, and they, they, they cancel him. But they are, I think, I, I, I do wonder if it's a sign of maybe them, them getting quite concerned about where they're at. I know that there were a few technical issues at the start, as one would expect, of course. Andrew Neil has, has vacated the premises for a period of time, hasn't he? Which is, again, uh, quite telling, I think. Then, uh, I think, on top of that, then they, they maybe saw that their viewing figures were dipping. I mean, they were outperformed one time by the Welsh version of a kids' cartoon programme. Paw Patrol, no less. Oh, sorry, there you go. Which is a top show. Well, yeah, I've, so I've heard. <laughs> yeah, and, um, Certainly more of a top show than GB News. But, that said, that said, 
said, GB News needs to be given time. It's creating jobs for people in the media. I think, by and large, you cannot expect a new startup to get everything right all the time. Um, and I know that they've got big plans to, to really kick on again. Nigel Farage has got a show on there, of course. He does bring you ratings, as a matter of fact. So, yeah, uh, look, I would expect them to, to go again, as it were. I know they've made a couple of hirings in the last few days. Um, and so, so, yeah, I think they're, they're going to rebrand, I think. They've lost, uh, of course, some of their top uh, executives uh, who've walked yes. over... Variety of issues, either yeah. the the taking of the knee issue, or the generally very poor technical quality of the show. Uh, I can't speak for Andrew Neil, uh, of course, but I'd be surprised if he was not embarrassed well. by the poor technical quality that he was associated with. His yeah. his face was on the tin, yeah. um, but I'm not sure that he actually called all that many of the shots. Mm. Yeah, well, that's, that's it. Yeah, so a couple of things. Uh, John McAndrew, of course, who was one of the, the, the major directors, a uh, programming director there, um, he had a big role to play in attracting a lot of the star names that they got initially. He had a big role to play in kind of setting up their output and indeed setting up their running orders. Uh, and it was a very influential, influential figure there. He stepped down in the wake of the taking the knee issue. Uh, and then, obviously, as we said there, Andrew Neil has gone. There is an argument with Andrew Neil, whilst I can fully appreciate that a man of his stature and his standing and, and you know, history, as it were, and quality, would not want to be associated with anything that was other, anything other than tip top and I, and I get that absolutely but he is chairman and I think in a ratings game he was one of the main people to bring you the ratings and there is a case to say that maybe he should have grinned and bared it for a while but you know obviously he's, he's been around these he's not going to take lessons from anyone is he he's not going to do anything he doesn't um, want the, to the, the, <laughs> these uh, star names that you uh, talk about uh, well, yeah. of course were largely uh, B-list star names but uh, yeah I mean yeah. some of them were known people uh, Colin Brazier Gave up a yeah. good job at Sky. But this uh, turn that they appear to be making with the appointment of Nigel Farage mm. to a nightly show Monday to Thursday uh, seems to be a turn towards culture war type TV. But how are they going to square that with the state regulator Ofcom? You and I both know uh, Ofcom, if it wants to, it doesn't always yeah. want to, but when it wants to, it can wreak havoc in off-commable media uh, for not, uh, not achieving balance in their shows. Yeah, Ofcom have got involved with GB News a couple of times already. There was one on the very first opening night, actually. Dan Wotton was speaking about, um, I think, to do with the lockdown, of course. And he was forced to Ofcom. He got, we got, say, got away. It was proven to have nothing, done nothing wrong. And, uh, and then uh, the chief of Ofcom as well. This is when everyone was talking about cancelling GB News, cancelling the adverts, you know, bar barricading them away, etc. Uh, well, actually, what happened there was the, the, one of the chiefs at Ofcom just came out and said, actually, you know what? I've seen nothing so far at GB News uh, that would warrant me having uh, any kind of concerns whatsoever. You would imagine that they would counter Nigel Farage with something, or potentially within that show, their feelers that they can give strong opinion, but be able to find a way. Of, uh, of giving balance as well, really. So, yeah, I they could always hire me, but I don't think they can afford me. Uh, the <laughs> uh, the uh, other issue uh, that you just touched mm. on there, that's raging now, yeah. is the uh, COVID mm. uh, Freedom Day, the ping uh, that told for the Prime Minister and the Chancellor, who are not going to be able to enjoy their own Freedom Day because they're going to be locked up at, at home. But they handled that so badly, oh, the shocking. Tory government. 
Oh, absolutely awful. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a lesson in, in how not to handle a situation like that. Yes, I think the Sajid Javid, of course, is, despite the fact that he's been double-jabbed, as we understand it, has got coronavirus. Clearly then, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, the implications that they've been in close proximity with the Saj, and so therefore they were cut to isolate. They got ping. Now, um, yeah, they, they, they decided to say that they were part of a new pilot scheme. It took them just two and a half hours to U-turn on this. I think it was insulting because, first and foremost, they tried to claim, actually, that the pilot scheme was random, a random generator. Well, that's interesting because several members of the cabinet have found their way into it, including the Prime Minister. So for a random generator, he to be hovering quite quite, 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 quite hard over quite, quite, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Um, they also then said that Boris Johnson released a statement saying, well, it's true that we, we briefly considered... Uh, not self-isolating. To the point where you put a press release out about it, you sent poor old Robert Jemrick up to the he media. Went he went on TV to defend it. He went yeah. into bat for Boris Johnson sooner, only to come off air and almost immediately they go, sorry, Rob, mate, yeah, we've gone back on that. So, so that's, but at least, uh, at least they know, at least they know that uh, they, they owe Rob one. Um, but what he did actually was take the heat off uh, one John Burko, the dumpy despot, was back in the news today because it's emerged um, that he has been taking his pension at the age of 58, not 65, 35 grand a year, which he said he wouldn't do. And then he blamed his wife, Sally, for making him do it. So that shows what kind of individual he is. And Boris Johnson, because Boris apparently is just such a risible chap that nothing matters anymore. Well, that, that uh, leads me to... Uh, we've got someone wants to talk to us on the line. But before we turn to Victor in Greenwich, um, such is the state of discombobulation uh, at the top of the government and such is the impecunious situation mm. that Boris Johnson finds himself in, with alimony almost without yeah. number. Yeah, we yeah, certainly yeah. can't count it, yeah, yeah. because well, we don't know how many <laughs> he's had. Uh, you wouldn't be that surprised if Boris walked, would you? It's an interesting one, really, isn't it? Because I think, obviously, you tend to make all your money after you've, you've finished being Prime Minister, don't you, I suppose? Um, I think Boris clearly has got a, a, a lot yeah, of Yeah, but the ex-wives won't wait, you No, see. no, they won't. No, they won't. Uh, and, and those bills are stacking up, though, and I don't get the impression that he's been particularly careful with his money over the years as well. So there's, there's that. What he seems to have a habit of doing at the moment is getting a cabal of very wealthy individuals to pay for a lot of his stuff for him with a bit of an IOU. Yeah, but there's the a reputational cost to that. There's a massive reputational cost to that. There's also the question of whether or not Boris Johnson is going to pay them back and how good at that he is. There's also a bit of an issue with regards to if you do lend the Prime Minister a sizable amount of money. You know, is Boris the type of chap we've seen over history who might try and do you a solid off the back of that? And that's not really any way to run a country. That's quite a low rent it's for a Prime Minister. It's kind of Lloyd George 1917, uh, 1917, 1918-ish. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's no, not it's really 2021 look. It's, it's embarrassing for the country, to be perfectly honest with you, that you would have a Prime Minister who's having to beg, steal and borrow from people, um, essentially to pay off uh, the fact that he's got a load of children, we're not legally allowed to report how many he has, or if indeed he does know how many he has. Uh, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not a great look for Britain, really. It's <laughs> not, no, and I wonder if the Conservative Party is beginning to think that, but you've not picked any of that No, up. I've not picked any of that up. I mean, it's clear that they're just rolling the wicket for Rishi Sunak, and that seems to be the one, and then the, and then the Conservative Party will be able to say they've had two female leaders, they've had the first ethnic minority Prime Minister as well. Keir Starmer's simply not at the races. He said he's willing to, to sweat blood in order to... He's not at the races, but he's always playing the race card. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true, yeah, yeah. But that would certainly, again, shoot his fox. Well, it would. Uh, it would, absolutely. And yet again, there would be... Although, as Pretty Patel has found, you can be the wrong type 
of yes. ethnic minority. Oh, absolutely, and, and a lot of it, I thought it was fascinating actually when, when Tyrone Mings, the English centre back, put out, uh, as he's perfectly entitled to do, of course, that you know, he didn't feel as though, um, uh, as though she, uh, Prince Patel had a right really to kind of congratulate the England team based on the fact she was okay, okay with uh, them being booed for taking the knee. Now, she actually said there that it was of individual choice for people. She didn't really, she didn't say, I'm banging in favour of booing, right? But you can imagine around at the Patel household when they took the knee, there was maybe some booing. So um, she, she kind of, she, um, she basically obviously copped it now online. But what I thought was really interesting was the racism towards her that was underneath that from the so-called kind of tolerant elements of, uh, uh, of society. You know, one form of racism seems to be okay and another form certainly is not. And I found that quite revealing. Yeah. Let's hear from Victor in Greenwich. Go ahead, Victor. Good evening, George. Always a pleasure to hear you. Thank you, sir. Um, speaking of racism, this overblown media campaign trying to win sympathy for Marcus Rashford, a multimillionaire who I think doesn't need our sympathy. He doesn't really seem to be complaining about these uh, tweets and so forth. It's obviously being blown up by the Blairite Brainwashing Corporation and its allied media, uh, pumped out every day for the last week, where they never tell us what exactly these vile comments really amounted to, though I heard that one of them actually amounted to nothing more than asking Marcus to go back to his own country. And as he's born in Manchester, I'm sure he's happy to do that. Seems to me it's obviously a, a, a way of bamboozling our MPs into passing more laws to deny us more free speech and ensure that the Blairite establishment media is the only group that's allowed to express its views on the internet. Well, look, that's a powerful call, uh, Victor. You've, you've come to the wrong place uh, if you want uh, us to diss Marcus Rashford because we're both Manchester United fans <laughs> and he's one of our heroes. So uh, we love, it would be a rise, Sir Marcus, if it was up to me. But Victor's on to something, isn't he? Uh, that actually I have seen it too little reported uh, that the vast majority of racist comments following the failure in the football final yeah. were from outside of the UK, which I think is quite a suspicious thing in any I case. Agree. I'm surprised there's not more speculation as to where the outside yeah. source of this was. Absolutely. Uh, on, on Instagram, for example, only four of, I think, 29 vile Instagram postings mm. actually came from yeah. Britain, which means the vast majority of them didn't. Yeah. It's, it is all a little bit of a storm in a teacup, isn't it? Yeah, I, I agree. I think there was, yeah, so 70% is the figure that I read uh, of, of these posts, of these racist posts came from outside the country. As you said, that's deeply suspicious. And it does make one question what the motivation or indeed who, who was behind all of that. There is, of course, the other thing as well, which is that the mural of Marcus Rashford that was vandalised, it was graffitied on, the implication of that initially, and everyone just swallowed this, was a foul racist abuse on Marcus Rashford's mural. And it wasn't racist abuse at all. That, that was the police who come out and said it wasn't racist. It was vandalism, right? Don't get me wrong, but it wasn't racist. 
least it's racially motivated. It was sacrilege, but it wasn't racist. Absolute disgrace, but it wasn't racist. And then, and then you see as well. There was a report that came out yesterday that we've got the highest number of um, uh, race-related issues reported to police since records began in, in this country. And so you look at that, but that's reported to police, right? So that's people now maybe calling things out. Or punkly as well, some, sometimes, sometimes maybe people reporting things that don't always necessarily end up with police action, right? So it's interesting because I think there seems to be a very, a very large push at the moment in this country to kind of denigrate Britain and say that it is one of the most racist places in the world. And I, They've I, obviously I, never lived in France. Well, uh, France or America or... Uh, France, or America or, 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 or the or, Netherlands or, or, or Denmark or, or, and, or Australia. I could name a hundred. And also, let's be honest as well, you know, perhaps, you know, race relations aren't particularly great in other parts of the world. There's vast parts of the Middle East as well where, you know, there's, they might not be necessarily racist against, against people like you and I, but there's racism that goes on there. They might indeed be racist against people like, like you and I. So, so there's a lot of racism in the world, and I don't think Britain is particularly... There's racism present in every yeah. culture and yeah. every colour. You know. Uh, uh, anyone who's uh, lived any length of time anywhere else uh, already knows that. Uh, but it's part of the anti-Brexit shtick, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. That uh, a carnival of reaction has ensued. Yeah. When actually, uh, that's entirely untrue. Uh, that the uh, England football team itself exemplifies a, a Britain that now is or will be, there's actually disproportionately mm. uh, a, a large number of black and mixed race people in it because mm. they're brilliant at mm. football. But the fact that Gareth Southgate was the manager of a team that did really very well until yeah. the last and everybody in the country loved them. You had black people with England shirts with Kane's name on the yeah. back. You had Asian people. Uh, you had white people with Rashford's name on the yeah. back and so on. Uh, actually, football is the least racist industry in Britain, and Britain is the least racist country I know. Yeah. Debate. Yeah, no, I, I agree wholeheartedly, and I think that for people as well, they might get a shock if they go elsewhere. I actually feel very sorry for people who look through, look at everything through the prism of, of race-related issues and see it all as some kind of, whether it's conscious or indeed unconscious, racial problem. I think that's a real shame, because actually a lot of people there were just watching the football, and they were just watching a fantastic... And were angry at uh, three highly paid footballers yeah. missing penalties they should easily have scored. Exactly, exactly. But people are very quick now, people are far too quick to kind of jump on, in my opinion anyway, the, yeah. the racial bandwagon. Well, uh, and that diminishes real problems with race. Well, it right. does. It devalues the currency. Yeah. I was angry at Marcus Rashford's penalty, yeah, and I love him like a son. Yeah. <laughs> and the last, the last reason why I was angry was because he was black. That yeah, is the yeah. least reason yeah. conceivable. Yeah. Uh, I, I was angry because he fannied Lovely. around yeah. uh, with, the, with his uh, foolish stuttering run-up yeah. and missed. Yeah. You can only do that if you're going to score. Let's take a call. Ian and Hounslow. Go ahead, Ian. Uh, hi, George. Hi. Uh, I didn't even notice, but um, if you go to some supermarkets now again, you'll see some of the shelves are empty. And the reason is we've got a really bad UK trucker shortage, and it's getting worse. This is not an aberration. The, no, no, the trucker shortage is a real thing. A good friend of mine, uh, Begal, uh, uh, is himself a trucker uh, and is really struggling to get drivers uh, for his company. So I know it's a real... <laughs> A real problem. Go on, Ian. Now, the, the anti-Brexit rejoin EU at any cost cultists 
of blaming Brexit. Uh, and they're only talking to business owners and managers. They're not talking to the truckers. Now, the truckers are, are, are going on YouTube and giving out like a, a little monologue on what's going wrong. And surprise, surprise, it's pay. Uh, you're hauling the rig for £10 an hour. Uh, and they had all these Romanians and Poles coming in who they exploited, like some call, form of modern slavery. Uh, and uh, this led to an increase in truck accidents of 67%. I'm one of because, the victims of just that. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, and also, many of them weren't even genuine truck drivers or were banned or were drunk or drove. Or, or, or so tired that they couldn't drive exact straight. Exactly, because they were working more hours than they're supposed to. And the rigs weren't in uh, roadworthy condition. So it's interesting that the, um, the, the EU Romaniacs are ignoring the drivers who talk about pay, conditions, not enough truck stops, not, no infrastructure, high insurance premiums for younger drivers. Uh, and the general, the general grind and grit they have to do to hold down a living and just talk to the managers in order to wave that anti-Brexit, pro-EU banner. That's a brilliant call, Ian. Thank you uh, for that. It is remarkable that they're still going after all these years, the Romaniacs, yeah. the rejoiners. Uh, uh, people, uh, I sometimes uh, wonder at the sanity of some of them, the idea that it's somehow a vote winner to want to rejoin the EU. Uh, but it's equally true uh, that if British capitalism uh, is having a shortage of labour, it's not, you don't need to be Einstein to work out that they've got to put the money up. Yeah, that's it. And I would, this is where I would expect the government to be quite nimble on their feet. So far, Grant Shapps' solution to this has been to essentially allow the drivers to take longer hours, which I think, as we've all can see, there's, there's some quite ca potential catastrophic flaws with, with that, and it's certainly uh, a sticking plaster. Um, I, I think the fact is that if pay is an issue, then maybe that's an area of our economy that we could help to kind of subsidise from the government. I did see a fantastic piece today, a picture today, sorry, on Twitter, that highlights exactly the point that your, your wonderful caller there made about essentially the, 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 the Romaniacs there. There was some uh, uh, fruit and vegetables... Uh, um, in Tesco's, the aisle that was that was quite bare, and they went, "This is Brexit Britain." They went, "No, it's the hottest day of the year. Everyone's outside at barbecues. They've just bought a load of salad, a lot of iceberg in, lettuce, in one Tesco's in yeah. one part of London." You know, so yeah. that's kind of where we are now. A lot of people want to jump onto that that particular bandwagon. I do think, seriously, that the you know the European Union fanatics have been completely undermined by the fact that we're supposed to be, whether or not it's Freedom Day in name only tomorrow, we're supposed to be having Freedom Day in this country tomorrow. Actually, realistically, we wouldn't have anything like. The vaccines will be in a position to have the kind of no. freedoms that we had now no. if we'd have remained in the European Union. Undeniably true. Thank Dr. you very David much, Patrick. Whitehouse is a doctor of astrophysics and an author, and he's kindly agreed to join us on this, the anniversary of the moon landing, if indeed the moon landing happened. Dr. David, I'm only joking. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Uh, but one of my friends did say he was only joking, too. Uh, are we really sure they did land on the moon? Let's crush that canard right, right up top. Did they? Of course they did. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming. Half a million people saw them take off. Um, a million, more than a million people were involved in the mission. 
the people who went there told us stories. We have rocks coming back from the moon which are different from Earth rocks. And when we put satellites around, around the moon, look down on the surface of the moon, we can see what they left behind. We can almost even see their footprints. We can certainly see the tire tracks of the rovers they left behind, consistent with the missions they performed. If you want a conspiracy theory, there are better candidates than we didn't go to the moon. Indeed. So, and isn't it the case that the computing power in this telephone is greater than the computing power that landed these two men on the moon? You are quite right. Um, even before we had smartphones, the computer power in, in dumb phones was much more sophisticated wow. than the uh, Apollo landing computer, which was at the time a work of art, a, a tremendous uh, uh, piece of equipment, and they couldn't have landed, performed a mission without it. So it was state of the art at the time, but you're right, things have moved on so much, not only in terms of computing, but in terms of materials, in terms of uh, almost everything to do with space. In, in, uh, 50 years ago, space was, you know, rarely touched our lives. Now it's intertwined with almost everything we do. Well, for someone my age, uh, space was uh, simply magical. Uh, we thrilled to the, to the Sputnik, to the moon mission, uh, to Telstar and, and all of that. It was a truly uh, a, a major part of my young life. I wonder why we moved on uh, so far. I mean, there are space missions going on all the time, including the Chinese landing on the dark side of the moon, for example, they get virtually no coverage nowadays. Why is that? Well, you're quite right. Things are different these days. You haven't got a race between the superpowers to get to the moon as you did in, in the 60s, although there is a new race starting it with many runners at the moment with, uh, with Russia, and China, America, and the entrepreneurs in America, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, etc. Things are changing. Um, but you're quite right. I've, I've often felt for many years people worked hard to make space boring. Uh, it isn't boring. There's, there's a great deal going on. And, and, and if, you, if what you're saying is that it doesn't have the right level of appreciation in our culture um, in the West, as, as much as perhaps it should do. I would agree with you. This is a tremendous story that fertilizes so much of our society, uh, which we should all be thrilled about and we should all um, appreciate. Quite so. Uh, now, have we forgotten about the moon largely because there isn't all that much uh, that we can now learn from the moon and that other targets that are now within reach the rovers on Mars and so on, uh, have greater potential uh, to uh, change the way that we look at life and the origins of it, change the way that we look at the universe. Well, there's a lot in what you say there. I mean, certainly, if you compare the Moon and Mars, uh, Mars is a true new world. It's the first new world of the cosmos. It's unlike the moon, it has an atmosphere, it has uh, clouds, it has winds, it has morning dew, it has a, a, a wet past and might even be, there might even be life clinging onto its surface. 
So the rovers going around on its surface and the future missions could actually tell us if there's life on another planet uh, in our solar system, and that would be tremendous. But Mars is very far away, and as far as people are concerned, it will be going back to the moon first. And whatever you say about President Trump, and <laughs> a lot has been said, he did actually get NASA to speed up and, and uh, get to the moon much sooner than their, their plan for later on in this decade. So at last, uh, 50 years after, the, over 50 years, 52 years after the first footprint on the moon, um, there are people in training for a mission in just a few years' time to go back to the moon, where we will have a base by the end of this decade. And as you imply, people will go to Mars in the decade after that. Yes, uh, but isn't the Trump Space Force type uh, propaganda uh, troubling though? Uh, aren't there people, particularly in the United States, they may be elsewhere also, uh, would like to militarize space, would like to militarize the moon? That would be a very dangerous thing, wouldn't it? Well, actually, it's already happening. It's already happened. Um, the United States spends far more money on the military aspect of space than it ever has on sending people to the moon, on building the space shuttle, on flying and operating the International Space Station. It's just that it's not, um, it's not obvious, uh, it's not out in the open, uh, but, but spy satellites, electronic, electronic satellites, they, um, they are more plentiful, they cost a lot more, um, they're more sophisticated than I think many people realize. And what Trump did was actually, he brought that out in the open and said, some people agreed with him, many did not, that the military aspect of space should be, if you like, under a new umbrella instead of being under the Air Force. So really the American Space Force is, is little that is new, but it's been, if you like, assembled under a new banner instead of being the space division of the air force it's now the space force um so it's it's good in a sense that um it has now more visibility many people are talking about it but let's not kid ourselves all nations uh, indeed from the very word go have more interest the chinese the russians the the americans um the british all nations have had more interest and spent more money on the military and security aspects of space, and they will continue to do so, than they ever have on the uh, laudable human exploration of, of space and the moon. One thing we could never have imagined back in the 1960s uh, is that anyone other than a, a state actor and um, a very powerful state actor could actually do these kind of things. But as you pointed out earlier, we're now in the era in which private capitalists are able to amass the kind of wealth that can fuel their own private space programs. I mean, is it conceivable that we'll see Richard Branson on the moon? And if so, can we leave him there? <laughs> um. Well, you're quite right. Uh, in the last 20 years, we have seen um, billionaires who have the financial muscle to do this, and we've never had that before. SpaceX with Elon Musk is a, is a tremendous company that started from scratch and made NASA look slow 
and has developed a suite of rockets which are um, world-beating uh, and which are now cheaper and starting to make, make profit. They can fly to the International Space Station and he can sell his taxi service to NASA um, for a profit in a way that wasn't done before. And yes, the extension of this is, is to go to the moon. NASA has already chosen Elon Musk's SpaceX as the preferred candidate to build the craft which is going to land on the moon in a few years' time. Wow. The other expert in the a billionaire in the running, Jeff Bezos, isn't happy about that. And there's currently a legal dispute between the two. But you're quite right. Things have changed. No longer will it be, if you like, a government going. Um, the government will go, but it will outsource the construction of the rocket and the capsule to private enterprise. Uh, and that hopefully will make things cheaper for governments, um, um, employ more people, and hopefully we'll get somewhere because, you know, it's been 52 years since we walked on the moon. It's about time we went back. Quite so. Uh, Dr. Whitehouse, thanks. Uh, a fascinating uh, resume of what's happened in those decades now since uh, my compatriot Neil Armstrong became the first man on the moon. Dr. David Whitehouse, many thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Peter says the Afghan people have lost, George. I thought you were better than this, to be honest. Give me a call, Peter. Tell me what you mean. And Oliver says, for some reason, George was on the jihadist side when it came to Yugoslavia. And that's the reason I will never trust him. I fought against the war on Yugoslavia with all my breath and all my heart. Me and Tony Benn and Jeremy Corbyn and others were practically the only people in this country opposing the war on Yugoslavia, the destruction of Yugoslavia. How dare you, you imbecile? If you have any guts, you'll pick up the phone right now and call this show and justify that utter slander. Really. And uh, Yoda says, love the show. Best entertainment and education on the airwaves. <laughs> now, it was a glittering occasion in North London last evening. In Muswell Hill, to be exact, in the Everyman Cinema, a wonderful, wonderful cinema. I wonder how long it will be allowed to call itself Everyman. Maybe it will be the Every Person uh, Cinema, but a truly wonderful jewel of a place it is. And there, in front of a very distinguished audience indeed, uh, we introduced as the premiere of my latest film, Killing Kelly, which was crowdfunded uh, by many of you. This rather beautiful poster is available, georgegalloway.shop. Uh, in fact, you can pre-order the DVD if you haven't already done so uh, by visiting georgegalloway.shop or you can uh, rent it for £4 online on Vimeo uh, or you can buy it for £6 uh, on Vimeo and uh, a very large number of people have already done so, so much so that the, uh, the uh, system collapsed uh, on the demand. There's the address, vimeo.com forward slash on demand slash killing Kelly. That's vimeo.com forward slash 
on demand forward slash killing Kelly. Or you can just go on my Twitter feed. It's being discussed by very many people there. As I said uh, earlier, it took some courage to make the film, uh, but not nearly as much courage as it took my next guest to write the book that inspired the film. He is the Right Honourable Norman Baker, and he's in, I think, this promo. Two minutes long, watch it. Just remember back in 2002, 2003, there was a wish by George Bush for regime change. That's what was driving him. Nothing to do with weapons of mass destruction, which of course didn't exist in Iraq. So they had to construct some sort of formula, some sort of cover story, in order to persuade the British public that intervention in Iraq was right. Now David Kelly, uh, as an expert in weapons of mass destruction, knew that uh, this was untrue. He knew that there were probably no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. That was a guy that could have brought down, that was a guy that could have brought down the whole system. I reckon you're chaff. You've been thrown up to divert uh, our probing. The Foreign Affairs Select Committee, that um, parliamentarian briefing, I think that was an indignity to him. We saw it on the news and my very first thought was shock. Um, oh my God, you know, this man is in the eye of the media hurricane. Uh, he should be protected by that at least. You've got to turn your hands, Prime Minister. Are you going to resign over this? I don't know the details of how Lord Hutton happened to be selected, but what was certainly the case is that he was the right kind of judge to use from the point of view of Downing Street and the intelligence services as well. Of the 21 days of hearing, only one half of one day was spent on discussing the forensic aspects. That is disgusting. We were given the Hutton report the day before. It was published. But actually what happened was he went too far. The events of 2003 were disgraceful ones in this country's history and it's unfinished business. Those responsible for an illegal war, those responsible for the death of David Kelly, have not been brought to justice. There's been no inquest into David Kelly's death. There needs to be one. We need to make sure that those who behaved in a reprehensible way in 2003 are finally brought to book. Daring and powerful words uh, from the Right Honourable Norman Baker, my parliamentary colleague for some time, uh, now in the radio business like me, and the executive producer of the film Killing Kelly, out from last evening. And going like hotcakes, uh, Norman, thank you very much for joining us again this evening, and thank you for coming to North London. Uh, for uh, the Q&A last night, which you performed magnificently and everyone uh, said so after you'd gone. So let me ask the, the first question. Where did you find the moral fiber and resolve courage to write the book when you did, when it was still a pretty dangerous thing to do? You might have been found in the woods yourself. Well, I mean, some strange things happened to me, but George, I don't think I was particularly showing courage. I was probably being rather foolhardy at the time. I was incensed that he was a man who uh, had performed great things, not just for this country, but for the world, who had been trashed openly by the government of the day, 
uh, whose name had been deliberately leaked uh, to the media in the feeding frenzy. Um, and yet when he died suddenly, uh, the press in this country, the useless press in this country, failed to look into that matter at all and were led off by Alistair Campbell to look into the fault, alleged fault, of the BBC. And the, the third estate in this country, the third or fourth estate, the press anyway, the media, just really performed so badly that I thought, well, if they're not investigating this matter, then I will, because someone had to. And uh, every time you picked up a stone, there was something nasty crawling underneath. Yes, and leading on to more and more stones, and uh, the film adumbrates them uh, very well. The director, Sean Murray, has made uh, a real silk purse out of what you and I were able to give him. Uh, it wasn't a sow's ear we gave him, but it's much prettier now, artistically, uh, in the final form of the film. I heard you say so last night. It's one damn thing after another, to paraphrase Mr. Macmillan. Uh, it's the lack of fingerprints on the knife, on the phone, on the water bottle, the lack of blood by the corpse uh, for a man that would have had to shed almost all of his blood to die in the way that the Hutton inquiry concluded that he had died. It was the picking of this uh, trusty Lord Hutton to do the inquiry, the abandonment of the age-old right to an inquest, and so on. One thing after another as we watched it last night. I marveled at just how many reasons to disbelieve the official story there were. Absolutely. And just to pick up on the fingerprints, of course, it's worth mentioning, as I did last night, that the fact that there were no fingerprints in the knife was not discovered by Lord Hutton. Such a basic question. It was discovered by me through a freedom of information request. It's not my job to do that. It was Lord Hutton's job to do that. But he failed miserably to do so. And I th you've listed some of the problems, George. I mean, there are so many problems. We could, we could spend half an hour listing all the inaccuracies, inconsistencies and... and ludicrous conclusions reached in the Hutton report uh, in that, in that so-called inquiry, which of course had no statutory basis whatsoever. But you know, the, the sad thing is that the public and parliament were treated with contempt by the government of the day, and they got away with it. They absolutely got away with it, and almost 20 years on, we still have had no inquest into David Kelly's death. Absolutely. And although we're uh, journeymen, working men in our prime, uh, working in the media, uh, the people responsible for all these things have little need to work as we know it. They are multi-millionaires. They've all been promoted, Norman. Yeah. Well, one of the sadnesses of the whole episode, uh, and I come to this at the end of my book, The Strange Death of David Kelly, was that the people who did, try to do the right thing in 2003. People like Greg Dyke, Gavin Davis, Andrew Gilligan, all found themselves out of a job, turfed out, uh, forced to resign. Uh, and, and Andrew McKinley, the Labour MP who was in the film, who tried to do the right thing as well, was, was, was turned into some sort of, I don't know, behemoth by, by the media, as if he was responsible for David Kelly's death. And the people who were responsible for the shocking events of 2003, people like Tony Blair and Jack Straw and Alistair Campbell, they all prospered. 
And Tony Blair then went round. He was when he was being prime minister. He was told by George Bush, he was going to be making peace envoy. I'll make you peace envoy in the Middle East. Go and make some money. And Tony Blair then went round the world with a T-shirt on, a bit like mine, but saying for sale on the T-shirt. What an undignified way for a former prime minister to behave. Here's a poll we've got up, uh, Norman. How do you believe Dr. David Kelly died? A, suicide. B, assassination. C, some other reason. People can vote on my Twitter feed now. Uh, if you were voting uh, on that poll, how would you vote? Well, I thought I'd vote B or C, because we don't know, but I certainly wouldn't vote A. I am convinced, beyond reasonable doubt, to use that legal test, that there's no way that David Kelly could have, been, could have committed suicide based on the medical evidence, based on the state of mind, based on the, based on the timeline. It simply wasn't possible. Uh, and it's an insult to the population at large to believe he did. And of course, let's just think about a proper coroner's inquest, which there wasn't one. The coroner began his inquest and was bundled off the case by the government. How dare the government today stop a coroner investigating a matter through an inquest? Is this what we've come to in this country? It apparently is, and apparently they get away with it. And where was the press complaining about this? Nowhere. But had the coroner's inquest taken place legally, in order to reach a verdict of suicide, you have to be convinced beyond reasonable doubt that suicide is the explanation. I challenge anyone in this country, anyone, to tell me that beyond reasonable doubt David Kelly committed suicide. It's a farrago of nonsense. Yes. Uh... But there's only thee and me uh, still talking about it and the 1,500 people that crowdfunded the film. We must hope uh, that the release of the film, uh, as it were, rekindles interest in this case, not just because of the importance of David Kelly, and I concur with your uh, paean of praise to him earlier, uh, but because of what it all means for the Britain we thought we had. Yeah. our institutions that we thought we had, which have all been shot through by the Blair government in the run-up to and since uh, 2003's invasion of Iraq. Yes. Immense damage has been done. Government apparently can now lie to Parliament to take us into an illegal war. Uh, government can ignore proper processes in terms of inquests, which have been well established over centuries, actually, inquests. Government can ignore freedom of information requests, which this government now under Boris Johnson is increasingly doing. A government can, in fact, lay the blame on the independent BBC and pretend it's all their fault that David Kelly died. I mean, what a shambles. And how do we put up with this? But that's where we got to in this country. The pillars of democracy have been knocked down one by one. No one's noticed and no one's rebuilding them. Now, how do people get your book? It's still in print. I know that uh, you had three with you last night. They were snapped up in about three seconds. Uh, a lot of people would still like to read it, Norman, uh, even though uh, there have been other books. Uh, yours was The Trailblazer. Uh, how would someone buy it now? Is it online? Yes, it's online and it's available in all good bookshops and no doubt some ropey ones as well. Um, it's uh, published by Methuen. Uh, it was reprinted. It's been reprinted many times. And the last reprint happened, I think, in January. So it's, it's around again. Uh, it's there. And I hope very much if I can come and uh, 
share some more events with you, George. I'll come and bring some along too. Yes, we, we, we will be taking the film around the country with that Q&A format at the end. Uh, so I very much hope that you'll join us. We're not a bad double act for two political enemies. Uh, the Right Honourable Norman Baker. I don't George, actually. I don't I'm pulling your leg. Not at well, all. Uh, you're, a, you're a hero of mine, in fact, and not just for that book. Uh, Norman, thank you for joining us on the film, at the event last night, and again on the show this evening. I hurry you on because there's a very large number of callers want to talk about the issues uh, this evening. Now, you can pre-order uh, the DVD at uh, georgegalloway.shop and you can download the video by going to vimeo.com forward slash on demand forward slash killing Kelly. Let's look at the early results on the poll. How do you believe Dr. David Kelly died? A, suicide, 11%. B, assassination, 81%. C, some other reason, 8%. Extraordinary numbers there. I hope Alistair Campbell is watching. Renato Silva says the ANC changed radically at least 10 years ago. And Gambin Nawe says Asians have always been the gatekeepers for white racism towards blacks in South Africa. I certainly don't associate with that inflammatory claim. Uh, and uh, Mal in Perth in Western Australia says, I hope you're well. Great show again. I was awake again waiting for your live broadcast on YouTube. I was watching a documentary only a few days ago about the so-called WMD and the spin and propaganda of Powell and Rumsfeld and Bush Jr. I can't believe the brass neck of these people how they said all this while keeping a straight face. It had nothing to do with WMD. It was all about regime change, as Saddam Hussein had gone past his sell-by date, and he was no more used to the USA. It's a disgrace what has happened in Iraq and elsewhere in the Middle East. Thank you very much for that, Mal, in Western Australia, and particularly for getting up so early. Uh, to watch it. And JK says an envoy of the CIA was in talks with Bolsonaro some two weeks ago here in Brazil too. And Jack Klugman says funny that the CIA director met with the Colombian leadership days before the assassination of the president of Haiti. Let's take some calls uh, from Cynthia in Westminster. Go ahead, Cynthia. Hi, George. Hi. Um, I was listening to your conversation with your colleague a couple of hours ago uh, in relation to the football match. Oh, and yes. Generally talking about racism yes. in the UK. And it's like really frustrating to be a black woman in her 50s. I've lived through five decades, had all sorts of kind of experiences of racism. Um, I think the issue really is white people. Um, I feel that you just need to be honest with yourselves in terms of how you treat ethnic minorities in the UK. I mean, it's always, we're always in this discussion where it's denied that it doesn't take place, but it does have and constantly has an impact on black and brown people's lives. 
emotionally, economically, and on a day-to-day basis. At the moment, I'm actually sort of moving, because I live in quite a middle-class area, and I'm actually moving from that area because I'm uh, one of the few sort of black uh, people that live there, and on a daily day, day-to-day basis, as I leave my front door, I experience this thing called microaggressions, which you probably don't really understand. That's just generally being I'd treated. like to understand. Uh, tell us about some of them. Well, it's just generally you're just made to feel unwelcome. Um, you're spoken quite rude to. Um, it's just generally a general coldness. Um, because I'm a, a black woman professional living in a sort of a wealthy area, I'm not supposed to be there. Um, there's just sort of a general undercurrent in Britain in which black people are just made to feel like second-class citizens. And it's not because, as your colleague says, oh, I feel so sorry for, you know, people that walk around feeling, you know, they've been discriminated against. I go about my day like any other individual, contributing, working hard, but I'm constantly reminded by racist white people that I'm different, that I, you know, I can be treated in an underhand way. It's this thing called institutional racism, which exists. It exists when you go to the bank if you want to sort of, you know, extend your mortgage or, you know, get a business loan. It's just everywhere. And I think, you know, white Brits just need to have an honest conversation with themselves. Well, we're ready ready to have that with you. Unfortunately, the hour is late. But let me just uh, respond, if I may. Nobody is saying, certainly not me, uh, that there is no racism in Britain. How could it be that there was no racism in Britain? We were an imperial colonial uh, empire uh, that, uh, that uh, was built upon the concept of racial superiority. After all, if we were not the superior of the places we were conquering and exploiting, uh, garrisoning, and in the era of slavery, taking the very people from those lands themselves, uh, then uh, that's racism. That's the root of racism, and we could hardly be exempt from it. Uh, My point was that of all the countries I know, racism is less here uh, than it is in those other countries that there is less now uh, than there was, I assure you of that, uh, when I was young and living in a place where there were no people of color. I mean, I would be a teenager before I saw a person of color, Uh, but there was plenty of racism in people's discourse, in the television shows, uh, that were on in the casual conversation, even of, of well-meaning people. So Britain is less racist than the other countries. Britain is less racist now than it was. And the England football team and the way that the whole country fell in love with it is an example of that. Last word to you, Cynthia. I mean, that's not good enough if you're a taxpayer 
paying, hard-working black person who continuously sees that you are at disadvantage because of white people's attitudes to the colour of your skin. It's not good enough that we still are in the economic position we are in because we suffer discrimination in the workplace, employment matters, etc. What we now live under is a system of covert racial discrimination. It's, it's hidden, it's denied, but it still has an well, insidious effect. Well, it's illegal, effect. of course. It's illegal. Yeah, well, it's still, it still has an insidious, insidious effect on our life chances. You know, why is it that, you know, black women are five more, you know, five times more likely to die in the NHS when they give birth to children? Why is it that we have a disproportionate of number of young men, black men, in prison, in the criminal justice system. White people in Britain, you know, you need to stop telling yourselves that you're not racist and you're better than every other country. Uh, well, we are look better the, than every other well, country. Look no, in the we mirror, are. No, we you're are. Not treated, well, tell, tell, you're not, tell, me, to, tell me a country that that's nothing. better. Yeah, but that means nothing no, to me. Well, it may that, not. It's that a that fair mean, point. Yeah, that that that's means a fair nothing point. to me and my children because we live no. here, we're born yeah, here, yeah, yeah. I've been here, we've contributed. You know, we've been here long enough, we've done the windrush, we work, you know, we were in the First mm. World War, Second World War. It's mm. about time that you look at yourselves and change your attitudes and yeah. stop being l so ignorant. We're human beings, we deserve to be treated fairly like everyone else. Okay. This country is supposed to be highly educated, highly superior in its all its arts and history, but you know what, there's one thing it's not good at. It's not good at being fair and kind to all the nations that have contributed to its wealth, whether in slavery or otherwise, mm -hmm. and I just feel that, you know, it's, you know, this football match really hit home. You know, the first thing that came out of their mouths was bananas and monkeys and everything. Stop being in denial. Why was that? Why was it their first instinct? They didn't see a 19-year-old boy. They didn't see a 23-year-old that had helped to sort of, you know, feed and support children in poverty. All they saw was the colour of, of their skin. Some foul beasts uh, did that. You're right. Uh, but the number of them was small, and the vast majority of them were from outside of the United Kingdom, which is the point that I was making. But listen, I, I, are you still there? I, I, I want to ask you something, Cynthia. Yeah. It's a yeah. difficult question. I'm yeah. sorry I have to ask it. Yeah. Is racism only something that happens from white people? Because we both know that it is not. Yes, we both know that there is racism between other races also, including in this country. We both know, know that some black people yeah. stab other black people yeah. because those other ple black people yeah. are blacker than them. Yeah. So this is not just about white people, is it? Yeah, but it is because you, you know, a white man or a white female in the situation that we live in has the power to impact whether I get a mortgage, whether my kid goes to a school. Can we deal with okay? the stabbing? And, well, that is, you know, at the end of the day, it's about power. Someone, you know, an Asian man being a racist against me is not going to have that much of an impact on my life than a racist bank clerk that decides, oh, we're not going to What about the large number through. of black people that are murdering other black people? Can you answer that? White people murder other white people. Why is it? Why do you narrow it down to colour? That's an example of the racism that I'm dealing with. Well, no, there's why nothing racist about it. Colour? It's a fact. A fact yeah, cannot be, be racist. Fact. It might be a Cynthia, fact. Cynthia, a fact cannot be racist. No, it the is the is fact 
that the vast majority of people stabbed to death in London last year were black people stabbed by other black people. That's a fact. That might have nothing to do with discrimination. It might, it might have to do with disputes. What I'm talking about is the fact that, you know, anonymous individuals will, you know, will harass me, will affect my economic development simply because they've got this ingrained, ignorant foolishness in their mind that when they look at me, they don't see a human being. They see something that they think is less than them. You okay. know, and at the end of the day, that is a white man's problem, a white woman's problem. It's about time you stop ignoring it and denying it yeah. and deal with it. You're causing a lot of harm. I'm causing a lot of harm. Thank you for that call. Uh, Ali is in Sweden. Uh, let's hear from him. Last call. Go ahead, Ali. Hey, what's up, George? Lovely okay. seeing you, mate. Nice to have. Okay, go I ahead, just sir. Want to, I, yeah, I just want to, re like, yeah, I'm totally... Like, I, I, I counter, I counter that woman what she's saying, like, I'm an immigrant myself, and I'm born and raised here. I mean, you don't, you don't have, you don't have it like that. It doesn't matter. It's not because of a white guy or whatever. You have problems because of policies. It's, pol it's political. That's why you have divisions and stuff. It's not because of my race and things like that. I mean, that's just silly. That's absolute crazy argument. I mean... Some guy looked at you funny, like, so, like, okay, sure, like, yeah, you'll meet once upon a, like, in life, you'll, you'll meet people that are maybe not, that are not nice, but it doesn't matter. That's not what, what makes it. I don't put everyone in the same, you know, in the same basket and call them all racist and crap. I mean, what kind of freaking ludicrous talking crap is this? <laughs> it's just insane. Like, what well, the hell is going on? Specific. <laughs> uh, talking about a coldness. Uh, talking about uh, bank issues and mortgage issues uh, and so on. Now, we don't know anything about those issues in relation to Cynthia. They might be personal. Uh, maybe she was refused something or treated in a way uh, that was personal. My own, uh, my own take is, Ali, uh, that wealthy professionals living in Areas where professionals live seldom suffer over racism. Good night. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 